Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight we find out how the death and custody of a 22-year-old Iranian woman after being stopped by the country's so-called morality police for dressing inappropriately has sparked protests around the country and what impact that could have on Iran's regime. We head to the ballpark to take a look at how a New York slugger is quietly belting his way into the record books. Aaron Judge has already hit 60, putting his name beside Yankee legends such as Ruth Mantle and Maris. Is Vladimir Putin losing his iron grip on power? His decision this week to mobilize hundreds of thousands of soldiers to bolster hopes of progress in the war in Ukraine is fueling speculation that failure so far is putting pressure on the Russian president. But first, we head to Atlantic Canada as a massive storm barrels through the region. We talk to people in Cape Breton, Halifax, and Prince Edward Island about preparing to face the ferocity of Fiona. Let's head right to Atlantic Canada with what is being forecast as one of the biggest storms in Canadian history bearing down on the region tonight. Post-tropical storm Fiona is expected to bring hurricane-force winds and more than 100 millimeters of rain to much of the Atlantic region and eastern Quebec. Closer to the path of the storm, more than 200 millimeters of rain is expected to fall. That could cause much greater damage. Bob Robichaud of the Canadian Hurricane Centre says it's likely the impact will be felt well beyond the centre of the storm. The storm uh, is expected to make landfall in eastern Nova Scotia. That's what we've been talking about for the last uh, few days now, and that's still on track. But what I recommend is not just to focus on the exact track of the storm. The impacts we're going to be are going to be felt way beyond where the center of the storm actually goes. People across Atlantic Canada are stocking up on last-minute essentials, or were all day, and storm-proofing their properties ahead of the arrival of Fiona. Bracing for those dangerous winds, heavy rains, large waves, and storm surge brought by the storm could lead to prolonged power outages, wind damage, coastal flooding. Late tonight, it was announced that Prime Late his departure for Japan to attend Shinzo Abe's funeral to remain in Canada till Sunday due to the ongoing situation with Hurricane Fiona. Uh, it's 11 p.m. in Atlantic Canada, 11.30 in Newfoundland. The storm is nearly there. I've been watching and tracking it all night, and we have complete coverage for you tonight. We begin with Global National reporter Ross Lord, who's in Port Hawkesbury on Cape Breton tonight. Ross, thanks for your time. Oh, thank you, Ben. It's great to talk to you again. It's been a while. It has, it has. We've covered a lot of stuff together over the years. This one, this one seems just so ominous. What's it like right now? Well, all week leading up to this, I've been watching this, uh, you know, as you have too, but, you know, knowing that I was likely going to be in the middle of it, and we are. So here we are in Port Hawkesbury, at or near where uh, Fiona is expected to make landfall in um, just a couple or few uh, hours um, as a, as a post-tropical storm. Which, which is where the metal gymnastics begin, right? Because most people think hurricane, ominous, post-tropical storm, less ominous. Um, but if you look at the features of this storm, that's not the way this works. Uh, the, the other features of this storm are such that most meteorologists uh, that I've been reading and speaking with and, and listening to are saying that this could have the, the uh, impact of a Category 2, for instance, which is what Hurricane Juan was uh, in 2003, covered that one. Um, it was an overnight event. It was just terrible devastation. People died from having trees fall on them. Some other people died indirectly um, after the fact. Um, but, you know, that one blew through in a matter of hours, and then by daybreak, it was gone, and uh, there was a lot of damage, but the hurricane was gone. In this case, it's 
becoming worse right now. I'm at a motel and I can hear the wind howling and the, the rain is coming down. Um, I, I was actually watching some baseball to get my mind off this for a couple of hours or try to. Um, and, and after we talk, I'm going to try to get a little nap because we need to go out um, in uh, a few hours and, and see what's going on. We'll be very careful in doing so. and We're not going to go far. Um, but yeah, you can feel already that it's becoming more intense and, um, you know, I'm studying as you are the, 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 the satellite images and, uh, the people I trust online to give me uh, good information. And, and thankfully in this country, we're blessed with a lot of great meteorologists, including here at global Anthony Farnell, one of uh, the folks who, who I'm taking my cue from, um, but we were in Port Oxbury today and talking to a lot of people, homeowners and shoppers and the mayor and people down at the yacht club and you know cape partners don't scare easily right when it comes to bad right. weather but they're 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 scared you know and and yeah. they are masters of underselling or understating things but uh they're they're afraid and they will they will tell you that um if, if you really um you know follow up on on your conversations with them and uh yeah. you know honestly yeah, i feel all frightened you, you, I'm sure you've been there a lot, you know, right? You were there for Dorian, I gather. You were there for one. This this one, what, what's what been the mood during the day? I guess everyone was just getting ready. Yeah, getting ready and, and like I said, trying to keep the fear at bay, you know, and, and trying to sort of convince yourself and convince others that if we do the right things, then, then everything will be okay. We talked to a woman who um, has done everything right. She's got everything that could move or be blown away, put away in, in a garage, and she's got enough pre-cooked food for 72 hours in case of prolonged power outages. Uh, that may or may not even be enough. We'll see. But, you know, she looks out the window and she says, what I'm worried about is those big old Dutch elms uh, that are nearby. And because if they topple over in her direction, then there goes her house. And, and there's not much of anything you can do about that. So this is what happened with Juan, right? Trees falling all over the place on houses and cars, et cetera. Um, and so there's only so much you can do and there's pretty much nothing you can do that will ease your mind and cause you to be relaxed about any of this. No, I mean, just the way it's been talked about too. I know sometimes there's that fine line between trying to encourage people to take precautions and then of course, you know, instilling fear in people, which is, which is probably not a bad thing, but, uh, you know, what are the big concerns in, uh, in Cape Breton itself? Because I know obviously there's the causeway. I mean, there, there are some concerns that are specific to where you are too tonight. Yeah, the causeway is a big one. And we're only a few minutes from the causeway because it's the, the big connection to, you know, the mainland between uh, Cape Breton and mainland Nova Scotia. Um, it's low lying. So we're anticipating um, uh, waves going over and, and we're anticipating it being closed you know, for how long we'll see. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's, it's amazing. We were down there tonight looking at, at the many uh, tons of boulders that are used on each side of the causeway and thinking, okay, they're not going anywhere, you know, or are they? Because, you know, they're talking winds here, um, hurricane force winds and, and some gusts up to like 150 kilometers an hour. The, the local forecast here in Port Hawkesbury, for instance, um, is uh, sustained winds of 90 kilometers an hour gusting to 120, possibly to 150 in some places. What, what scares me most of, with that is the sustained at 90, 
Like if you have, um, I'll, I'll tell you in Nova Scotia, if you have winds at 60 gusting to 90, that's really windy and it's dangerous. So if you have winds sustained at 90 gusting much higher and not only gusting briefly, but I looked at the forecast for tomorrow for here, we're talking all day, Ben. Like we're talking all night. We're talking all day. And so you can understand when you start looking at that hour after hour after hour, why people, including me, are so concerned about what's going to happen. Yeah, I've, I've been reading just the warnings, people being told, listen, be ready to go to just hunker down, batten down the hatches for 72 hours, uh, you know, and be prepared to be without power, be prepared to be without a lot, be, you know, have food ready. As you mentioned, the one woman did everything right, but still, you know, the, the fear is there when weather comes your way like this. And we've seen it. We've already seen the devastation that this very storm has caused in other parts of the, in the Caribbean, for instance. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, it's it's that old, you know, mindset of oh they're maritimers they're used to it they'll be fine and 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 you see online sometimes someone will chime in with a oh we're good we're we're used to this well sometimes there's nothing you can do (laughs) like you know you try to do the best and and you try to keep your morale and your friends and family's morale up but really all you're really doing at this stage of the game is just hoping you know the waiting and the wondering and the worrying which has been going all week is now you know, it's now real, right? It's it's kind of a slow motion train wreck, um, and and you're just hoping that uh, that they're you know that, that it's not fatal for one thing, and you're hoping that um, you know there's not there's not too much serious coastal devastation or uh, personal property damage, uh, road washouts. Like we're talking the whole nine yards, right? Storm surges, uh, 200 millimeters of rain in some parts in a, in a fairly short period of time, and. Um, and those crazy winds. So, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> yeah. we'll see and what happens. And, and it's personal for you too, Ross. I mean, this is home for you, right? This isn't uh, you're not you haven't draw, you haven't flown in to cover this. This is home for you. No, yeah, it is home for me. I live in Nova Scotia too, and uh, you know, this is the way it goes. When when these things happen, sometimes you uh, part of you would rather be home, um, making sure things are okay there, or at least trying to, but uh, don't have that luxury. So um, where I live will be less impacted, but it doesn't mean it won't be. Um, So, yeah, we'll just see. We'll know better by uh, certainly by this time tomorrow, but hopefully before then we'll have a better idea of of how we're going to come through it. Well, Ross, I know you and Gray have, have been through lots together as a, as a reporter camera pair. And uh, obviously, oh, yeah. <laughs> thoughts, are, thoughts, are, thoughts are with the, both of you tonight. Stay safe, stay dry, hopefully. And uh, we'll, we'll check in again, Ross. Best of luck and thank you so much. Thank you. I know that BC's had more than its share uh, recently. And I've, 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 you know, felt empathy for that. And, and uh, you know, everyone gets through it. Um, and, and now it's our turn. And, uh you know the the particular context of this with with climate change is a, is a talk for another day. I think after it's over, but um, it's it's a frightening world at times. Well said, Ross. Ross Lord, thank you. Port Hawkesbury and Cape Breton tonight, bracing for post tropical storm Fiona. We're spending this hour in Atlantic Canada, of course, where uh, post-tropical storm Fiona is bearing down on the region, packing some heavy winds, some high rain, and everyone is just battening down the hatches tonight, hoping for the best. Uh, let's head to Halifax now, where Paul services with Halifax Search and Rescue. Uh, good evening, Paul. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, good evening. No problem. What's it like right now? I, I, I'm watching the tracker. It's not quite there yet, but it's getting close. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm just parking on the side of the road right now uh, where we've been out. Uh, the winds are starting to intensify in the in the Halifax area um, as have been going down uh, to the various sites that we've been checking tonight. Um, there's starting to be more, uh, you know, increased power outages uh, throughout the peninsula of Halifax. Um, and there's certainly some trees down as you go along and branches and, and that type of thing. So the storm is, uh, is definitely uh, coming towards us. Yeah, I understand you have sort of you have some things that you have to do tonight. You're looking out for people who are still out there. Is that right? Yeah, so uh, at this point in time, uh, we've been tasked by the uh, Halifax Regional Municipality to uh, to go out and check approximately 20 sites uh, for uh, homeless uh, individuals or vulnerable residents uh, in the municipality. Um, and these are, uh, you know, certainly throughout uh, Halifax, Dartmouth, and, and Sackville uh, area. Um, and uh, we make contact with the individuals. Um, you know, in some cases, we affirm the weather that's coming and, and try to uh, address the severity of what, what is coming. Um, and then we certainly advise them of the, um, the options that they have for the night. So uh, if they decide that they, uh, they don't want to, if they decide they want to weather it out, we'll, we'll leave them there. Um, if they decide that they don't want to weather it out, um, then certainly we provide transport to uh, a couple of shelters that are in place in the municipality. Yeah, I gather there have been a lot of shelters opened up just for this, for people both who are, who, who are vulnerable, but also those who may want to not be in their homes tonight. Uh, so at this point, we certainly address um, the issue around the, the vulnerable uh, sector. Um, so uh, I think the municipality is basically looking to see uh, um, how things go with the storm as to what uh, they'll open for uh, comfort centres in the morning. Um, so that's kind of a, a call that's made a little bit further on. Just for you, in terms of some of the other work, what else are you out there looking for tonight? Because I can't imagine there are many of you out on the roads this evening uh, or late tonight in Halifax. Uh, no, uh, there's not a whole lot of traffic, that's for sure. Um, but our, you know, our main mission tonight is, uh, is as I say, is focused on the, the homeless, uh, you know, the vulnerable sector, um, making sure that those folks are looked after um, and uh, you know as comfortable as they, as they possibly can, and, and that they know the options. So. Um, but no, the, the roads are pretty quiet in Halifax. I'm seeing, uh, you know, a number of tree crews now that are, uh, uh, just doing amazing work right now. Um, you know, sure at the city, we've got Nova Scotia power due to the power outages. They're, they're on the roads now and, uh, uh and doing their thing. I mean, you've been, obviously you live there. You've been preparing this for, for yourself as well. Everyone on your team will be preparing for this as well. It must, must've been a, a, hect- a hectic few days for everyone. It is. Um, we certainly had lots of warning and uh, great advice from uh, from about as to what the severity of the storm was going to be. So um, we not only prepare, uh, you know, certainly for ourselves and for our families, um, but we're also we had members that were out at our base earlier this week that'll check over our generators and check our trucks and equipment uh, uh, because well we may be a ground search and rescue team and we may you know our primary mission may be to go. Uh, looking for the lost uh, and injured subject in, in Nova Scotia or in Halifax. Um, certainly we uh, provide some capacity to emergency management uh, in Halifax. So uh, this is always something that we're prepared for with our members and we you know, advise them to be ready to be, uh, to be called out if, they, uh, if, if we're needed. And you're going to have to stay safe tonight as well, right? I mean, I, I know you've probably been through something like this in the past, maybe not quite as bad, but uh, I'm sure you have ways of making sure that uh, that you don't get caught up in the storm yourselves or don't get caught up in the worst of it and get yourselves in trouble. No, we're we're actually uh, literally just at that line now where we've made the decision to uh, 
to send our trucks home and uh and i'm heading home myself as you know to, to get off the road because it, it is coming enough that it's uh, it's cross that line uh, for safety for us well paul service i wish you and the team the best of luck tonight i hope you don't have to do, do too many rescues obviously and uh great work i mean thanks so much for taking the time to, to talk to us tonight no thank you so much have a great night yeah. We're spending the hour in Atlantic Canada today as uh, post-tropical storm Fiona bears down on Nova Scotia. It's going to pass through eastern, the eastern mainland of the province, Cape Breton and Prince Edward Island, uh, later or early today. It's already almost today there, or tomorrow rather. Then it will go on to Quebec's lower north shore and southeastern Labrador early Sunday. In small coastal communities across, along the eastern shore of Nova Scotia, people are trying tying down their boats and hauling them to dry dock in hopes they won't be damaged. Here's Rodney Fougere. Today I'm tying up my vessel the best way I know how, so she can still be here after the storm. I'm hearing it's not good. I'm hearing there's a lot of wind that's going to be coming for an eight-hour period, and the winds are going to be rotating right around. Yeah, it's going to be high winds, uh, gusts of up to 100 kilometers an hour, or sustained winds of 90 kilometers an hour, lots of rain, obviously concerned about storm surges and so forth. Uh, The Prime Minister has announced that he's going to delay his departure. He was supposed to head to Japan uh, to attend Shinzo Abe's funeral. He's going to stay here in the country till Sunday due to the ongoing situation with uh, post-tropical storm Fiona. Uh, He's also saying, listen, that they're uh, they're ready. Trudeau and Emergency Preparedness Minister Bill Blair have been in touch with their counterparts in Atlantic Canada. Here's the Prime Minister. Provinces have tremendous resources to uh, support and prepare uh, for this, but it's going to be a bad one. Uh, And that's why uh, the federal government, as we always are, will be there with uh, supports and resources. So just watching that storm tracker as uh, Fiona inches ever closer uh, to the mainland. Again, it's supposed to track right over Cape Breton. That's where we find Cape Breton Regional Regional Municipality Mayor Amanda McDougall tonight. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I know we have quite, we have quite a title here, don't we? <laughs> yeah, too sorry about that. I was uh, just how is it? We were just talking to uh, my colleague Ross Lord, who's in Port Hawkesbury tonight. Uh, it's getting windy there. He was saying, uh, "How are things where you are?" It sure is. So it's it's happening. The rain is coming down. Uh, the wind is picking up. Even in the quietness of a house, you you can hear it. And I know. Uh, you're, if you were out and about, which we really, really strongly encourage people not to, you would see the lights on in all the houses because I think we're all just sitting vigil, making sure the ho- our homes are okay, our neighbors are okay, and uh, waiting, waiting for what's to come in the middle of the night. I know you've been uh, out all week warning people to take this seriously. Um, I imagine you think you've been heard. Oh, oh, certainly. Yeah, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of conversation. There's a lot of anxiety and worry, especially when I'm seeing things on social media. Um, so today I actually had my, my little one up in Halifax, which is about a five hour drive here from from Cape Breton and uh, for his doctor's appointments. And I drove from the afternoon into the evening uh, with the beginnings of what Fiona is. So feeling that storm that whole way, that whole five-hour drive was really, really intense and invalidated all of the anxiety that we've been hearing a lot lately. Yeah, he's okay, I hope, after his appointment. It's a long drive. It's a long drive. Yeah, no, he, he's a super trooper. And so, yeah, we're, we're, we're pretty used to it. We have a great, great health uh, service center for children in the uh, capital of Nova Scotia, and he is treated like a king there. So, yeah, we, we got through it, no problem. Um, but I think... 
my worry is what is to come. So we're already looking at the um, outage maps, the Nova Scotia Power outage maps for for the province, and there's there's just about eighty thousand people without power, and so that concerns me because the areas without power are not in that direct line of impact like Cape Breton Island is, and so we're bracing. Um, I know we have our Center 200, which is our regional um, facility here for CBRM, open for the public right now. Storm surge is terrifying. Um, That's really, really scary. I know high tide's at about midnight here. And so the winds, the rain, the storm surge, it's quite devastating for the coastline. What are your what are your concerns? I mean, I know you've been talking a lot about preparedness all week. There's only so much you can prepare for Mother Nature. Uh, but what are your concerns? I know the causeway, I was talking about that with Ross, because he's obviously not mm-hmm. far from the causeway in Port Hawkesbury. You would have driven over it tonight, I gather, on your way back in. Uh, that's one concern Absolutely. I know I've heard you heard you mention. There must be others as well, just with the topography and the way that Cape Breton is, lies where it lies in the, in the, in the face of the storm. True thing. Yeah, we're an island and we have a giant lake in the middle. So we are surrounded by water and our center is water. So when we hear things like high tide, storm surge, high winds, um, immediately you think about flooding. And that flooding not only is on the coastline, but it goes inland as well. So in 2016, uh, just as I was becoming a counselor here in CBRM, uh, we experienced what we called the Thanksgiving Day floods. And it was that combination of high tide, uh, winds and just horrible rains that caused people to lose their homes. And that's the scariest part, right? Um, Right now, we're worried about folks that are unhoused as well. So we've been working with our community stakeholders to make sure that they have the resources to to ensure that those who are unhoused have have safe shelter. Um, Our shelter's been doing a great job. They have an extreme weather center as well that they open up. But it's just making sure people people are going to be okay. Um, I know there's a lot of chatter on social media saying we need to open comfort centers right now, but we we don't do that from the get-go. We make sure that people stay hunkered down during the worst of the storm. Once we know it's safe to travel around again, get them to those comfort centers, charge your phones, get some tea, uh, take a deep breath and know that you're okay. Um, But really, it's going to take some time. We've been through this before. Yeah, I was just speaking to Halifax Search and Rescue. They're obviously out tonight looking for the unha- for people who are unhoused, the vulnerable. But but again, they were saying that uh, comfort centers are not going to open. They really don't want people moving around tonight. I think that's probably the main concern. You don't want people getting up and leaving to go somewhere right in the middle of this. Most certainly not, no. And so that's why it was really important to work with those agencies and organizations. And I know Mayor Mike Savage and I, we have such a great relationship and have been sharing a lot of information back and forth. But uh, making sure that those those stakeholders who have that direct contact um, with our vulnerable communities are, are out there and being vigilant and having our support to make sure folks are taken care of. In the meantime, um, yeah, we... we, we do not want to see people. We don't want to see headlights on the road unless they are those essential workers that are making sure that emergencies are being taken care of. Um, I know a lot of the time those viral videos will go around of, hey, look at me, I'm on the coastline, these waves are crazy. This is not the time. This is absolutely not the time. You need to stay home, stay safe, um, and, and make sure to take care of your neighbors too, right? Um, there's a lot of folks that are on their own, could be seniors, could be folks that are just... Um, living in vulnerable situations, but just taking care of one another. 
I know you were back and forth to Halifax today, but what was the mood like in, in Sydney around around Cape Breton? I know there are isolated pockets as well you must be concerned about, but what was the mood? Was it was it one of sort of quiet determination or was there a bit of panic in the air? What was going on? Well, it's funny. Yesterday I left the island and I went to the gas station first and <laughs> one of the gas station attendants said, you know, you can't get a loaf of bread, you can't get chips or milk. And I was like, okay, folks, like we're all prepared. We have everything we need in our fridges. Um, but, you know... It's an interesting thing. Like I said, this is not the first time, right? And so there's an anxiety, a definite worry. Um, this is a bigger storm than, we, than we've ever experienced. But I think there's also experience to this. Um, we've been through one. We've been through Dorian more recently, the Thanksgiving floods. Um, unfortunately, you get more and more used to this because of the effects of climate change. And so we're learning as a community how to be prepared, how to make sure that, you know, our community centers have generators, what to do, um, what do you need in your 72-hour kit, right? Like people have actual totes ready for hurricanes. So anxious, worried, but prepared. Tell me a bit about this storm in particular, because I know you've been talking about it. It is massive, and it's going to hang around. I think that's the one thing that Ross Lord was talking about earlier, is that he was around for one, and it went through quite, it was devastating, but went through quickly. Mm -hmm. This one's going to linger, and I think that's where the fear is. Exactly. And I, I think, like you said, the size of it, when it turns from a hurricane to a tropical storm, it's almost like that storm, it that's it just widens and, and, and that impact zone is so much bigger and that that is worrisome i never thought in my life i would ever become a person who was like okay if storm tracks west it'll do this if it tracks east it'll do that and unfortunately when you live on the coastline you become a pro in that so knowing that it's moving slightly east is good it is good but um the breadth of this storm is just so large and i think the the unknown, right? You don't know how much rain's actually going to come down. You have predictions. You don't know what those winds and those sustained winds. That's that's the scary part. The sustained winds. You can have gusts that are very very strong, but if you have sustained winds for a minute or more, that is where the extreme damage happens, and that's what we're hearing is going to happen. Yeah, lots of trees, right? That's the, the, the Gary Oaks and so on that, as was being mentioned earlier, those are some of the concerns and just the, the houses in the way and so on. You can't, you know, you can't do much about that. No, no, certainly not. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, again, no, we, we have an emergency center that's opened. Um, we, you know, we have the ability to make sure folks can gain access and transport to those centers. Um, but right now, it's it's a bizarre thing. It's a bizarre thing. You know, I've got two young kids, so I'm typically in bed right now, but there's no way my husband and I are going to be going to sleep anytime soon. We're waiting for it. Yeah. What does the next 12 hours look like? You're just going to try to wait out the night and assess what assess what assess what's happened when the, when the sun rises? Yeah. And I think I'm doing the same thing that every other person is doing. So every time the, the wind gusts, you're like, got to go check the windows, got to go check the patio door, got to see what's happening in the basement. Uh, it's it's being it, you have to monitor your property um you have to be vigilant about it but then it's going to be tomorrow afternoon when we're allowed to go back outside i think once it passes if hopefully it passes by the afternoon um i know i've been talking to ministers from the provincial government my our mps um there is a huge collaborative effort by our community leaders that we will we will come together we will assess what is happening um the prime minister like you had put put on your your commercial there beforehand 
he knows too. He's ready. They know that disaster financial assistance is going to have to kick in because it's not going to be pretty. And just the kids. What do you tell the kids? They must be. They must pick up on all of this, right? Well, certainly. Um, you, you just try to calm the nerves, right? And say, remember that last time we had a storm? Don't worry. See, here's your gold new flashlight we got. Um, it, it, it's, I don't know, you grow up on the East Coast and you get used to it, I suppose. And you just have to keep a calmness to it. You have to keep a calmness. Amanda McDougall, I, I, I wish you the best of luck tonight, you and the entire community and all of Cape Breton, given what's on its way, we think. And, and uh, you can just only hope that it, that it, all works out for the for the best and i know you're prepared and thank you so much for taking the time tonight i really appreciate it no thank you for your kindness and your thoughtfulness too it it means a lot though when we're out here battling the winds to know that folks are thinking of us so thank you We've spent the hour in Atlantic Canada, of course, uh, tropical storm, post-tropical storm Fiona bearing down on the region tonight. We've been speaking with folks in Halifax, Cape Breton, uh, Global News reporter, Global National reporter Ross Lord as well, just about the mood. Uh, the rain has begun. The winds are starting. There's some power outages in Nova Scotia. PEI will also be impacted by this. Again, uh, they're talking about uh, gust, you know, wind, sustained winds of up to 90 kilometers an hour, 100 millimeters of rain in some areas, as much as 150 in others, perhaps as many as 200. We don't really know just yet, but it is going to be a massive storm. Uh, let's go to PEI now. Basil Stewart is the mayor of Summerside, and he joins us now from there. Thanks so much. Uh, how are things there tonight? Good evening, sir. Things are a little breezy right now and uh, raining quite heavily, but... Uh... I understand it will be getting worse, but uh, we can certainly live with this so far. Tell me a bit about the preparations. I know you've you've experienced big storms in the past. This is not you're on the coast. This is not something that's completely unfamiliar. But this one, this one seems ominous. Yes, we had the Hurricane Dorian, I believe, in nineteen, and then if you go back to two thousand and three, we had the Hurricane Juan, and both caused a lot of damage, a lot of. I guess it's Mother Nature's way of pruning. We lost an awful lot of trees, beautiful old trees. But when this time of year, when you get when the ground gets so wet with that wind, uh, they, some of them tipped over, you know, probably much more easily. But anyway, there was a lot of damage that time. But we're prepared. We have a good emergency plan in place. Um, we're fortunate here. We've got great department heads, whether it's municipal services or police and fire and community services. and we go over our emergency plan every month or two or three, depending, and uh, just to make sure everything is in place and everybody's got their duties lined up if an emergency is or was to take place. And that can be anything besides a windstorm and a rainstorm, but at least this time of year, it's not cold. Right. Right. Uh, what's what's the mood been like in Summerside? I mean, I've been to Summerside uh, many, many years ago. It's usually quite a quite a peaceful, relaxed place. Uh, I can't imagine it was too, too relaxed in the past 24 hours. Well, you're right. It is a pretty relaxed uh, little city. We're situated on the most narrow point of Prince Edward Island. We're only about three and a half miles from water to water, so it's kind of breezy here sometimes anyway. And But uh, uh, the people, uh, great people here, we're about 50 miles from the capital city of Charlottetown. Mm-hmm. And the greater Summerside area would probably be 20,000. That's including some of the surrounding communities outside. But having said that, uh, uh, no, people have been reasonable and they understand. Uh, you know, we they have their additional food in place and water. And uh, 
and we have um, plans made if we need shelters, but uh, our staff and will certainly be able to handle any situation that happens. What we about what do you? Own, uh, we also have our own electrical utility here and our right. own wind farm, and uh, we're in the process now of installing a big time solar farm, which will be the largest one in Atlantic Canada. So, anyway, with our municipal services department, uh, we have lots of heavy equipment to handle any any uh, major problems. And uh, like I said, we're, we have very capable fire department, fifty five members. And the same with the police department and the community services. So uh, there's always something, as you know, sometimes falls out of the sky you can't see coming. But we feel we're prepared and we've gone over our emergency plan a number of times. And we're prepared to deal with whatever happens to come along and prepared to deal with it the way we're supposed to. What will the next 12 hours look look like for you, uh, Mayor Stewart? Well, I just came in off the street and took a drive around the city and... You know, the leaves are blowing and the, the few little branches down here and there and a lot of rain coming down. So, But I understand this may just be the beginning of it, but we'll play it by ear and uh, and uh, hope for the best. Uh, I know there are other parts of Atlantic Canada concerned and worried as well, but it is what it is and we have to deal with it. And uh, as community leaders, we try to have everything placed to deal with it in kind of a situation. Well, Basil Stewart, thank you so much for your time tonight. Obviously, uh, the rest of the country is looking to Atlantic Canada tonight, I'm sure, and, and just hoping for the very, very best, hoping that it all uh, blows over, so to speak, uh, and that there is not too much damage by the time this is all said and done tomorrow afternoon. Well, it's great. Like you mentioned, the rest of the country keeping an eye on Atlantic Canada and looking at Atlantic Canada. We feel it's a pretty good corner of the world here. And we're, you know, in the Maritimes in Atlantic Canada. Indeed, uh, Prince Edward Island is absolutely a beautiful place, and uh, I wish you I wish you all the best tonight, uh, Mayor Stewart. Thanks so much for talking to us. I know it's late. Okay, that's no problem. But now with the bridge we have to New Brunswick, uh, the rest of the country wants to be connected to PEI anyway. So I guess that's why they put the bridge in, eh? <laughs> exactly. Uh, okay. Good to good to good to still have a sense sense of humor tonight as well, Mr. Stewart. Okay, bud. Thanks no so problem. much. Have a good night. Uh, basically- Next time you hear someone whining about how Canada isn't free, why don't you have them, why don't you just point them to this story? Point them to Iran. There's a, there's a good idea of a place that isn't free. Um, a reminder today again of what it's like to live in a country that isn't free. Anti-government demonstrations over women's rights continued right across that country today. Uh, women are burning their headscarves. It's an act of resistance against the Islamic Republic's strict dress code, and particularly those who enforce it. Here are some of the sounds from the streets of Isfahan in central Iran tonight. <laughs> Right, protests in Isfahan in central Iran tonight. Here's what sparked it all. The death of a 22-year-old named Masa Amini. She was visiting Tehran with her parents earlier this month. She was stopped by the so-called morality police, apparently for wearing unsuitable attire, her crime. She had some hair showing through her headscarf. Remember freedom? She had her hair, some hair showing through her headscarf. She was taken into custody and officially collapsed and fell into a coma that day at a detention center. She died three days later. Here's, here's ABC's Jordana Miller. 
Iranians continuing to pour into the streets of cities across the country, protesting the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini, who died after an alleged beating by the now U.S.-sanctioned Modesty Police. That division notorious for harassing and abusing women who veer from the regime's strict Muslim dress code. Defiant women now in the streets burning their hijabs or headscarves. Security forces firing live rounds on the protesters in some cities. At least 26 killed including some police, according to Iranian state TV. Jordana Miller, ABC News, Jerusalem. Well, joining me with more on this is Jasmine Ramsey. She was born in Iran, but was raised in Vancouver. She is deputy director of the Center for Human Rights in Iran, and she speaks to us tonight from New York. Thanks for your time. Thanks for covering this, Ben. You know, it's so often the case that that one individual example of something begins begins to embody something much broader. But perhaps we could start with just what happened uh, to Ms. Amini back in early September, um, because this has really sparked a huge amount of protest and obviously a lot of anger in Iran over what happened to her. Right. So um, Masa Amini's death has become a rallying cry. Uh, she was visiting Tehran with her family. She's 22 years old and she's picked up by the morality police, which is a unit of the police in Iran. They have everything to do with morality or uh, repression, excuse me, and nothing to do with morality. Um, and so they take her in and tell her family that they're going to give her re-education. And so when women are taken in uh, um, by this group. They are forced to take a class. There's a picture taken of them and usually they're let go. Um, But within two hours, her family finds out Masa is in the hospital. And just a few days later on September 16th, she's pronounced dead. Her family believes that this was a result of beatings um, uh, while she was in state custody. And um, the Iranian government has said that, you know, this 22 year old girl suddenly died of a heart attack. On our website, we published um, a translation of an interview with her father saying that he's raised her for 22 years and she's perfect perfectly healthy and that he personally got calls by other girls that were also picked up by the morality police saying that she was in fact beaten. Um, and so now there is truly a crisis in Iran. People are calling for an end to the impunity that runs rampant within the government. They're calling for social and political change and women are opposing the mandatory hijab law by removing theirs in public, cutting their hair in public, dancing in the streets. There's truly um, a resounding outcry from all facets of society. We've seen protests happening in more than 50 cities, uh, which is why the Iranian government has responded with such force. There's heavily armed security forces through every city right now. Um, They're using lethal force according to the UN, and they've blocked internet and phone access. Tell me about Miss Amini's crime, because I gather what, what she was picked up for was, was having some hair visible. Is that right? That's right. But her father totally disputes that um, and says that she was actually perfectly dressed. And that really speaks to the arbitrary nature of these arrests. It's really just people on the streets deciding who gets picked up and who doesn't. There's no checks and balances on the power of these groups, which is why many are calling for the morality police to be completely abolished and for the hijab law to be abolished as well. 
I gather these guidance patrols, I was really reading an interview that uh, the BBC did with one a guidance patrol officer where they have they have a quota, essentially, where they're asked to pick up a certain number of people. And perhaps this is came into play here as well, that in fact, you're right, it's absolutely arbitrary. Exactly. And it's really important to note that just before this happened this summer, the government of President Abraham Raisi declared that all government entities should more strictly uh, enforce hijab observance. He did this. There's these uh, groups harassing people on the streets. And then suddenly we have this woman's death, which really talks about responsibility. I mean, there's many different people responsible, but at the height of power, it's truly this government that has pitted Iranians against each other and turned the hijab, which should be a choice into a tool of repression against women. Well, the Iranian government, is the investigation into what happened to, to her over? Is, is the official line that she had the heart attack and that is that? I mean, when the Iranian government talks about investigations, it's it's not really clear what they're going to do. Um, and the Iranian people, the way that they have responded indicates that they don't have any faith that any kind of investigation, an independent or fair investigation will be taken. And we also should note an Iranian Canadian by the name of Kavos Syed Amami died in 2018 while he was held for interrogations in Tehran's Evan prison under very suspicious circumstances. And in both cases, the uh, intelligence services and the state security forces have pressured both families not to speak f- publicly about the cases, harass them, especially Sayed Amami's family. There's a long history of that. For years, they were harassed in Iran, pressured them to quickly bury the body and not allow them to do an independent autopsy. So that really brings up a lot of questions of why they would do to go to such lengths to get rid of this story if there wasn't any fault. We, of course, remember the, the case of Zara Kazemi as well that goes back a little yes. further, but the Iranian-Canadian journalist who died in, in, in prison in, in Tehran. Yes. What, how, just how unprecedented has the, the anger been? Because I think what we're watching, it's hard sometimes to know what's happening in and around Iran when, when there are these, these flashpoints. Just how unprecedented has this display been so far since uh, the death of uh, Mizamini? Yeah, I mean, it's truly uh, amazing the level of rage that you're seeing on the streets. Uh, People are chanting um, justice for Masa. They're also chanting death to the dictator, death to Khamenei, who's the unelected supreme leader who's been in power for decades. Um, And this protest is not happening in a vacuum. There's been protests in Iran for many years, especially the last six years. It's really um, part of the evolution of the protest movement in Iran, which is certainly focused around uh, social and political change. What makes this particular protest unique is the extent to which women were at front and center of so many of them in the very beginning um, and and the focus on the the forced hijab law and the way that women have been leading. Men and women also are standing side by side and calling on Iranians, passerbyers, people in their homes to join the protests. And they're also pushing back against security forces. The Iranian government really appears to be flat footed, caught flat footed, not not knowing how to respond, because usually what it does is it just responds with violent force, turns off the internet and uh, represses the protest that way. But there's so many people in the streets, in main towns and cities, but also small ones, cons- 
conservative ones uh, that have very different views towards Iranian women than you would see in the more liberal cities. Everyone is coming out into the streets and uh, venting their anger right now. I, I gather, though, it has the repression has begun. I mean, there, it has turned deadly. And that is always, you know, absolutely to, to see that from abroad. What, what do we know? I mean, the last number I heard was 26. Yeah, I, I don't like to give the numbers right now, mm-hmm. because based on what we've seen from previous protests, they're very much the tip of the iceberg. You know, people journalists are working under an Internet blackout and phone blackout. So it's very difficult to say the official numbers by the Iranian government yesterday were 17. We yesterday had 36. We expect that number to be much higher and not to mention also the numbers of injuries and arrests. We will start to see the true picture once the Iranian government allows more internet access and more access to the country. Jasmine Ramsey is our guest this half hour. She is the deputy director of the Center for Human Rights in Iran. We're talking about the death of Masa Amini, a 22-year-old who was visiting Tehran with her parents when she was picked up by the morality police, allegedly for uh, not properly wearing her headscarf, her hijab, with some hair visible. Uh, Her family disputes this, but uh, three days later, she was dead. Her family say that uh, they believe she was beaten. Um, The government says she had a heart attack, uh, and it has sparked a huge amount of anger on the streets of Iran, by women, of course, who uh, are opposed to the morality police and the enforcement of these rules. So what happens now, Jasmine? Because you've seen a lot of these events in Iran over the years where things spark and then are quickly quelled by force um, and then sort of disappear and then pop up again. Do you feel like this one is different? It definitely feels different, but it's very difficult to predict where this part of the protest movement in Iran will go. I think it depends a lot on the extent of lethal force that the Iranian government uses to repress them. Um, And, you know, it's also important to note that these protests, they were spontaneous and organic, and they're leaderless at this point. And the main reason for that is because the Iranian government has either imprisoned, killed, or forced out of the country uh, viable opposition leaders. So this is that really speaks to why there's that kind of rage on the street, because every time people try to open a space for themselves to have a say in the Iranian government's policies, it closes it. And now people are simply out in the streets trying to speak out and calling against this crisis of impunity in the Iranian government. We've seen reaction from world leaders. Obviously, the UN General Assembly has been meeting um, in New York. So that has been an issue of certainly a topic that's come up there. Uh, What have you made so far of the international response uh, of Canada's response, for instance? Are you hearing the sorts of words of condemnation uh, that you wanted that you want to hear? And is it enough? Right. So it's important to note that President Raisi went to the UN General Assembly and talked about justice and listening to the will of the people while completely ignoring what's happening on the ground in Iran. He expects the world to either look away or get distracted by other issues, which is why we're calling on all world leaders, not just leaders, um, parliamentarians, Congress people, anyone that has a prominent platform to speak out against the use of lethal force against these protesters in Iran and call on the Iranian government to allow people to speak up and and respect uh, social and political rights. Um, So certainly Canada and anyone should be speaking out for this. Um, And we also want to say that it's not just leaders, but people with large platforms, celebrities, anyone. Yeah. 
we heard yet yeah, Justin Trudeau yesterday said Canada strongly supports people who are expecting, expressing themselves and protesting peacefully in Iran and calling on the Iranian regime to end its repression of freedom of expression and to end the ongoing harassment of and discrimination against women. You mentioned that it had been that it has long been used as a much broader tool of repression in Iranian society, this crackdown on women and the way they dress particularly. Perhaps just explain where it lies in the greater scheme of things when it comes to how the regime controls dissent within the Iranian population writ large. Right. So, I mean, if you look at the political prisoners in Iran, so many of them are actually women. Um, Nargis Mohammadi uh, and um, people that have kind of go in and out of prison, people like the prominent human rights lawyer, Nasreen Sudadeh, who for years was imprisoned actually for defend in part for defending women who had been accused of um, not wearing a proper hijab. The hijab was imposed shortly after the revolution in Iran in 1970. My mother was one of the women that helped organize one of the first major protests against the compulsory hijab. And the extent that we're seeing women on the streets in Iran risking their lives and risking their freedom to say that they don't want this to be forced upon them is truly awe-inspiring and really courageous and speaks to the thirst for change in Iran, as well as this unity that we're seeing uh, among men and women and and people of all different socioeconomic classes who may not agree on many issues, but they all seem united in speaking out against this government, which has been either unresponsive to their needs or completely repressive. And again, though, I, I was just reading about that. I don't know what's the same one. I was reading about the 100,000 people that gathered on what was International Women's Day in Tehran back in 1979 yes. to protest, if that's the one your mom was involved with, which is, and there were other protests after that being said, this has been in place for more than 40 years now and used effectively, I guess, as a tool of repression. Uh, do you ever see it ending? I mean, we see these these up, these protests pop up. And then, as I mentioned, you know, the use of force comes in. Um, will this ever come to an end, do you think? And, and does the regime have an interest in allowing it to end? The Iranian people seem to think that there is a chance that if they speak up forcefully enough, that someone will hear them. Uh, all we can do is try to amplify their demands and keep a spotlight on Iran as they risk their lives to air their grievances and let their voices be heard. Um, certainly, we at the Center for Human Rights in Iran believe uh, religious freedom and the freedom of expression are two inalienable universal rights. People should be allowed to wear a hijab or not wear a hijab. And we certainly hope that the Iranian government listens to this uh, call for uh, freedom in Iran, as well as uh, world leaders, especially leaders that have direct relations with Iran, that have direct channels of communication, to call on them to stop uh, repressing this this call for change. Given your position and what you do, were you surprised by the death of Masa Amini? Oh, no. I mean, uh, you should see the kind of deaths that happen in the prisons in Iran, um, even among political prisoners. Uh, there's a systematic policy that's aimed at keeping people dan down and keeping the status quo in place, no matter what cost to the people or the nation. And it's causing deaths but it's also causing mass protests and what could be a major uprising. So the Iranian government needs to really pay attention to that. I guess I meant it, you know, she seems like she was the furthest, furthest thing from a, from a dissident, right? She was a 22-year-old tourist in Tehran, the capital, with her mom, with her parents, rather, uh, who made what could have 
may or may not have been a very minor infraction to a very old rule. And it just seems shocking from the outside. It, it is. And that's the part that breaks, I think, so many Iranians' hearts. Um, in the interview that the, that her father did with a Persian news outlet, he actually said, we're, we're people from the province. You know, uh, he's saying that we're, we have nothing to do with anything. We were just here visiting. Why are you doing this to us? And I think that question of why are you doing this to us may be on the lips and uh, tongues of so many Iranians uh, that are protesting inside the country and of course, also outside the country for so much change. Jasmine Ramsey, thank you so much. Thank you. We'll finish tonight on the baseball diamond because this is that time of year uh, where regular season records uh, are being challenged. Career records are being set as we head towards the playoffs in the World Series, of course. Um, Albert Pujols of the Cardinals hit his 700th career home run tonight. That is an incredible milestone for Pujols. Only the fourth person to do that after Babe Ruth, Hank Aaron, and uh, Barry Bonds. So that was a big achievement tonight. The other one that everyone has been watching is New York slugger Aaron Judge. Now, there are few records as coveted as most home runs in a season. And hitting in tonight, Judge, uh, who wears number 99 for all us uh, Canadians, a number we, we know well, is knocking on history's door. He has 60 Already, uh, same as Babe Ruth in 1927, just one behind Roger Maris's Yankees record of 61. Uh, here he is hitting number 60 against Pittsburgh on Tuesday at Yankee Stadium. Three infielders on the left side for Judge, and here's the 3-1. Drill deep to left field. There it goes. Number 60. Slide over, babe. You've got some company. Aaron James Judge has tied George Herman Babe Ruth with 60 home runs. So there he is hitting number 60. Now that's a big deal. Here's where things get interesting, though. Not only is Judge just a few launches away from Yankee history, given the, given the controversy surrounding all the others who hit more than that, more than Maris, which is Sosa McGuire, and the 73 hit by Barry Bonds, which is the record. Um, Asterisk is beside all of those because of the... Uh, you know, the steroid era, Judge may well set the new standard for home runs by a player not tainted by scandal. He's done it all with what can only be called quiet consistency all season. With more on this, I'm joined by baseball historian Bill Humber. He's author of Let's Play Ball Inside the Perfect Game and Diamonds of the North, a concise history of baseball in Canada. He's also a member of the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame, and he joins me now. Uh, Bill Humber, thanks for your time. Great to be with you and to talk about baseball. Yeah, it's always fun at this time of year. I always, you know, I always think of late September and early October as the greatest time to talk about baseball. Um, to, this has been sort of a quiet yep. record-breaking season or potentially record-breaking season for Aaron Judge. Have you been watching it from the get-go thinking there's something going on here? It's slowly crept up on me. Like I think it's crept up on everybody else. And, um, you know, I was reflecting back to 1961 because uh, I was 12 at the time. And there's an old saying in, in baseball, what's the, the best baseball season of all time? It's the season when you were 12. And, and that was the year that, of course, uh, Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle were slugging it out, as it were, for uh, for 60 home runs. And, and there's quite a story behind that as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I've read about it, obviously. But yes, 12 years old, I think the same applies to hockey as well. What was your best hockey season when you were 12? There's something magical <laughs> about sports at that age. You take it so seriously, but you understand it. Yeah. So, well, I mean, we just won yeah. the Stanley Cup when I was 12. So, you know. Right. Those things don't come round too often. <laughs> no, I think the Islanders won the Stanley Cup when I was that age, and I was a Habs fan. So <laughs> there you go. Um, but Aaron Judge has had this remarkable year, and he is, I mean, he's doing it by himself. So we don't have the same right. drama as as Mantle and Maris or as yeah. even Sosa and Maguire. Uh, but he, just from an analytics point of view, is having a remarkable year. Oh, un- unquestionably. And um, he he's a guy who decided at the start of the season he wouldn't sign a a, a contract on the on the understanding that he was going to have such a great season. Um, they're going to have to pay him even more uh, for next year. If he stays in New York, he may go elsewhere. Who knows? But uh, yeah, I mean, he's leading, you know, he's leading candidate for an MVP. And that's just saying something, you know, when you think of Shea Atani, you know, and the kind of season he had last year and continues to have this year do, being able to do both things so well. But uh, Judge is in a, is in a, a category by himself. For my listeners who are not baseball fans, Shohei Otoni is a uh, Japanese ball player, plays with the uh, mm-hmm. California Angels. I guess they're the Anaheim Angels now, and he both pitches and hits, and he's having a monster season both on the mound and at the plate. So, be, but the fact that Judge is is a Yankee, and, mm-hmm. and and you were mentioning it earlier, all that mythology around Babe Ruth sixty, and then Maris hitting sixty one. Uh, there is a bigger part to the story because he wears the pinstripes. Absolutely. No question. I mean, the original 60 home run uh, hitter, of, of course, in a, in a, you know, the the first Otani, you might say, was Babe Ruth, both a great pitcher and, of course, a, a fabulous hitter and hit 60 home runs in 1927. But it's the 1961 pursuit of those 60 home runs by Marison Mantle, which, uh, the you know, the comedian Billy Crystal is, has memorialized in film and, and others have talked about. But it had a significance that season because Ford Frick, the commissioner of baseball was reluctant to acknowledge how important or how significant this pursuit was because he had been a he'd been a, a ghost writer. He'd been a number of, you know, had a number of associations with Babe Ruth and didn't want to see the record go. And of course, in 1961, it was a 162 game schedule. And up until then, we it was 154 games. And so Ford Frick ruled that if you don't hit the home run, uh, the 60th home run or 61st for that matter, to break the record within 154 games, we're going to put an asterisk next to your name and kind of diminish the accomplishment. And of course, uh, uh, Maris didn't hit his 61st home run until the last game of the season, game 162. But nobody really took seriously what Frick was saying. So uh, Aaron Judge has hit 60 home runs. Uh, I think, I believe he, he was in the 148th or 49th. I know he hasn't hit one in a couple of games, but he's he's gotten close to, he's he's tied Ruth in his num- in the same number of games, in other words. Absolutely. And, and, you know, he's got about, I think, I think five more, you know, to, to, before, uh, to hit that 61st, you know, within the 154. Not that that should mean as much as, you know, perhaps it did to Ford Frank. But nevertheless, I think it's a significant accomplishment, particularly when you look at the list of guys that are uh, on top right at this point of Aaron Judge. They're all either Roger Maris, who hit his, of course, 61st in the 162nd game, or they're, they're players from the steroid era of over 20 years ago. You know, Mark McGuire, Barry Bond, Sammy Sosa, uh, all of their accomplishments uh, 
have another asterisk, you might say, beside that, besides their names. And, and the very fact that it hasn't, you know, and no one's come near to these totals with perhaps Giancarlo Stanton, Stan, I think, did a couple of years ago. The fact that no one has really come close to kind of challenging those great home run records tells you a little bit about perhaps uh, how valuable steroids t- turned out to be for those guys. And the fact that judges do, and I think we're pretty confident he's doing it without the juice or without any other means, because, you know, the the chances to jeopardize your image, your career, your your future contract, I think the the um, the downside of that is so enormous that I think we can be pretty confident that he's uh, he's a pretty clean ball player. Yeah, as we saw with Fernando Tatis Jr. this year, with uh, with some some you know the, the impacts oh. of these things can be absolutely devastating on a very good ball player. Aaron Judge is a quiet man, though. I mean, he's he's an incredible he's an incredible athlete, but he's not a he's not Reggie Jackson. That's for sure. No. He's, he's a he's a he's a quiet slugger, and you don't meet many of those. You don't see many of those. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I, I love the line about uh, Jackson, you know, that he was the, uh, he's the mustard on the hot dog, you know, or the, the guy that stirs the drink. He, he was, he, he had a number of uh, wonderful quotes and quite a character in some respects, kind of a, a bit of a nasty guy in some respects too, um, but had a, 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 you know, an over the, you know, over the top uh, personality. Well, Judge doesn't have that. You're absolutely right. He's, and I, I guess in some respects, those kind of characters, those kind of, you know, outrageous, you know, personalities associated with sports, you know, they've diminished significantly. We don't see them, you know, we don't have to just talk about um, baseball. I mean, we can look at all the major sports and these are guys that, you know, are making a lot of money. They take their profession seriously, but in the process, we've lost a, a little bit of the character that, you know, say uh, a Babe Ruth was, was renowned for yeah. on a whole bunch of levels. Or Bill Lee, who pitched back in Montreal oh. when I was growing up, was another character, Vida Blue. Like there was a lot of Doc Ellis, Ellis. There was a whole bunch of them. Yeah, one of the things I found remarkable, though, is that given the way baseball has evolved and the analytics behind it and how much pitchers are saved, you don't see any, they rarely see a pitcher for a third at bat. I mean, it just makes what Judge has done this year seem even more remarkable considering how much how much st- stats and analytics have come into the game. Well, that's that's really true. I mean, pitchers don't go. The, I mean, they some of them do, but I don't think a Blue Jay pitcher has gone the distance this year. I think I'm I'm correct on that. Um, and it's because of that notion that by the time the batter sees a pitcher for the third time, he's better time. His timing is better. He, you know, the pitcher may have lost a little bit of something. Uh, he he kind of anticipates the pitches he's going to see. And so what we're seeing is pitchers being removed five, six innings into a game. And then a whole batch of, of, of middle relievers and long relievers and whatnot coming into the game. Now, the downside of that that argument is that traditionally in historic terms in baseball, those middle relievers, those those mop up guys in some respects, weren't the best pitchers in baseball. They weren't your uh, closers. They weren't your starters. They were they were somewhat the middling guys in the lineup. Even they are changing, though, even they are becoming, in a sense, practitioners of being 
you know, masters of the sixth inning. And who thought we'd ever see that in baseball? So you're right. Judge is, is seeing um, change changes in, in types of pitchers he's facing later in the game. Um, he's facing, you know, a multitude now of, of arms that know when the pitcher goes out there, I'm only going to pitch an inning or two um, so I can give everything I've got to this guy. And, and the very fact that he's able to overcome that and he has to overcome it to get to 60 home runs is an extraordinary accomplishment. My guest this half hour is Bill Humber. He's a baseball historian, a member of the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. We're talking about Aaron Judge of the Yankees, who's having a record-breaking or looks to be a record-breaking season in New York. He's hit 60 home runs already. That's just one off the Yankee record of uh, Roger Maris set way back. Uh, And now he's moving into that territory where there was a lot of talk. I mean, I remember the Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, 1988 homer race very well. But uh, none of those guys are in the Hall of Fame. Barry Bonds, uh, Sammy Sosa, and Mark McGuire. Aaron Judge does have a, a legitimate opportunity here, I guess, to set what would be considered the untainted home run record, even though those records are all still there. Absolutely. No question about that. You know, I I well remember that. I'm old enough to well remember it, uh, that 1961 season. And and just as they were starting to approach 50 home runs and more, my, my parents... Um, I, in retrospect to my glee, but at the time it seemed uh, unfortunate, took us to England um, because my dad had come out from England after the war. And so we took a boat out of Montreal that went to, you know, Southampton in England. So for seven days we were on the high seas and we couldn't get any news. You know, oh, there, the there was days. a little newspaper they'd print and, and maybe they'd say Maris hit his 54th home run today and that was it. And you could not follow it. You could. And of course, once we landed in England, you know, this is long before the days of social media and the Internet, et cetera. There was no coverage at all. There was nothing. And it was, you know, you almost felt like you were on another planet at at the time. And so I all I distinctly remember when we came back, we actually flew home in October and it was the fifth game of the World Series with Cincinnati. And the first thing we had to ask was, well, what happened in the home run race? You know, we've been we've been basically on another planet for about uh, a month. And it was uh, to find out that Mar- it was an exciting thing to know that Maris had hit those 61 home runs and uh, surprising that it was Maris, not Mantle, who had done it. Yeah, because Mantle, of course, was the favorite. Yeah, I remember back early enough to be being in Ireland in the early in the in the early nineties and having to read, you know, the International Heritage Tribune to find out who won the Stanley Cup. You know, <laughs> yes. these days you could be anywhere and you could you could follow Aaron Judge's every pitch on every on absolutely. Every game. But but the, those tainted records, I guess I guess that yeah. means something. I mean, for those who who forget, those records have, have officially. I mean, they're all still in the record books, but Judge may in this case actually establish what could be considered a legitimate. MLB home run record this year? I think it will be regarded as such. In fact, I was saying to some friends of mine, this may be the home run record that legitimately has an asterisk beside it. And I and I say that because, you know, the, the taintedness, as it were, of the Sosa McGuire um, Bonds home runs, uh, it's it's still a a kind of a dark moment um, you know moment in baseball history that, that the late you know the late 20th century and in the first year of the 21st when we came into it um and and really there was an you know a, an attempt on all sides both major league baseball and the players through their union 
to almost pretend that this wasn't going on. And I think everybody knew it was going on, that there was something there was something unacceptable about it. And so, um, yes, it will. They will always be there. Bond 73 home runs will always be kind of in the record book. But as you say, and as it's been noted, um, he isn't in the Hall of Fame as yet. And it's that taintedness, which is. You know, I, I mean, I think there's different perspectives on whether he should or shouldn't be in. Um, I, you know, I'm st- I, I'm starting to come down on the side of saying, you know what, you know, hold your nose one year and put him and, and Clemens and maybe even Shoeless Joe Jackson in because they probably and maybe even Pete Rose, because they they in terms of their accomplishments on the field. It's, it's hard to argue against those, even though there were uh, mitigating in, uh, circumstances surrounding them. Yeah, I mean, obviously, a Pete Rose, Shoeless Joe Jackson, Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds, it's quite the team. Quite well, it's the a team. hold your nose uh, ceremony, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The one thing, I mean, I always remember how much pressure um, Maris was under, especially because everyone wanted Mantle to break the record and Maris did instead. One doesn't get the sense that that Aaron Judge has been crumbling, I guess, being way off in advance, you know, six, seven games up in first place with helps. And he has a huge lineup around him, but uh, he doesn't look like he's been too phased by this pursuit of of glory no and when you remember back and you know i i did look at you know back at you know that the mantle maris pursuit as as september dawned and as the pressure built both of them suffered both of them um you know their their hitting fell off their home run you know you know streaks as it were became somewhat you know less uh, pronounced they they both felt that incredible stress i guess associated with it and maybe it was the nature of the time, the nature of, uh, you know, uh, the, the, you know, we, they were well paid for players of their day, but they weren't well played, you know, paid when we look at the, the, the nature of baseball today. And I just think it's a different media landscape today. It's a different, you know, sense of pressure. There's other sports that are now, you know, top of mind and people's, you know, thinking about sports. And I just think that just, you know, the judge grew up in a, you know, Aaron Judge grew up in a in a different era. He 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 grew up in an era where, you know, you could take for granted uh, some of this because regardless of whether you hit 49 home runs or 65 home runs, you were still going to be well paid. One of the things that struck me, though, is that, you know, with all the different stuff out there, baseball, of course, is looking for ways to retain fans, uh, that there's something there is something sort of bittersweet about this this pursuit of history that Aaron judges under because it has flown under the radar a bit. And one assumes it wouldn't have happened this way 20 years ago. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and, and to some extent, the very fact that judge has been so consistent in his home run hitting, you know, he hasn't, it's, you just kind of take it for granted. Well, he'll hit another one tonight. And, you know, I think most of us think he'll break the, you know, the 61 tonight or tomorrow. Uh, It just seems there's a certain inevitability to it. And maybe that's partially the reason it just, it almost just become normal uh, in terms of his ability to hit. It's not, you know, he hasn't gone through those, incredibly long streaks where you wondered if he'd hit another hit, uh, you know, hit another home run again. I think that might, that might be playing a part in it too. Bill Humber, thank you so much for your time today. It's been great being with you. I had a conversation while I was in London this week about um, the war in Ukraine with someone who thought that, of course, uh, Ukraine was to blame and that Russia was in the right here. And I hadn't heard that opinion in a while because it's tough to square that opinion with, stories like we heard today. 
This one, for instance, a team of experts commissioned by the UN has found evidence of war crimes committed during Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The team leader is Eric Murs. He says civilians and non-military targets have paid a high cost throughout the war. The commission has visited 27 towns and settlements and has interviewed more than 150 victims and witnesses. We have inspected sites of destruction, graves, places of detention and torture, as well as weapon remnants, and consulted a large number of documents and reports. War crimes. That's what Russia committed in Ukraine. War crimes. So it's hard to justify the invasion, no matter how you put it. Meantime, a Kremlin-orchestrated referendum, referenda, got underway in occupied regions of Ukraine today that uh, wa- are going to try to make them part of Russia. Uh, I mean, the whole thing's a complete sham, but they're they're carrying ballots to apartment blocks accompanied by gun-toting police. Clearly, I mean, these are areas, Donetsk, Luhansk, maybe, Zaporizhia, Kherson, not really. You know, these are not part of Russia. Uh, they certainly haven't. They haven't been in it a long time. Uh, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says the territories in question are indisputably part of Ukraine. The United States will never recognize uh, this territory or as anything other than part of Ukraine because it belongs to the people of Ukraine. Uh, that is the White House Press Secretary. Uh, this all comes in what has been a strange week if you've been watching this war for a long time. So after what appears to be a lot of internal pressure, Vladimir Putin announces a partial mobilization this week, uh, which will mean approximately 300,000 people. Now, the way this works is these are people who've already done a year of military training, men between 18 and I think late 50s. Is that how old it is? Now, of course, a lot of people don't want to go fight in this war because it seems like such a complete and utter waste of time and waste of life. So Men, not tons, but enough, are fleeing, either trying to get out of the country um, or protesting. There's been protests against this as well. And it all raises some interesting questions. Um, Now, clearly, they're going to crack down on those who don't want to be there. Apparently, uh, this bill that that there's tougher punishment for those refusing a military summons for those or those who desert. Apparently, those who've been arrested are being sent right to the... uh, Right, are handed draft papers right there and then. So, you know, this this is serious business in Russia if you're of a fighting age, so to speak. Women aren't cannot be conscripted, by the way, in Russia. But is Vladimir Putin losing his grip here? You know, he, he's looked so incredibly incompetent through all this. Are 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 people getting restless on the inside? Is that what's going on? Uh, who better to ask than Catherine Stoner? She's a senior fellow senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. She's the author and editor of several books on contemporary Russia, including the most recent Russia Resurrected, the Power, Its Power and Purpose in a New Global Order. She's Canadian as well, to top it all off. Thank you for your time tonight. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, even the title of your book, I mean, it seems like it's power and purpose in the new global order seems to be shifting every day. What do you make of, of President Putin's decision to issue this partial mobilization? Well, it's, uh, I think, a bit of an act of desperation and an admission that things were not going uh, uh, as well as he'd anticipated in, uh, on the battlefield. And so uh, with the recent gains that the Ukrainian army has made in the Kharkiv uh, region and beginning to um, push back some of the territory that Russia gained earlier this year, 
um, and and uh, and reclaim it. Um, he's you know come to the conclusion and under some pressure from uh, those who are closest to him, uh, feeling that he's not doing all he could to make this a victory. Um, and so it's interesting, you know, watching an authoritarian system uh, to note that there are these pressures uh, on the leader. And um, now he's having to do something that he's very reticent to do for fear of social backlash. And, and that is what is being called a partial mobilization. Uh, but it's a little more haphazard than partial. Yeah, I, I, talk, talk about that, because I think people have always felt that we've obviously talked about Putin's inner circle and those who could pressure him and those the many who can't. Um, what are we watching here? Who is putting on this pressure? And, and where is where is this this idea that somehow he's not done enough coming from other than the reality on the ground? So I think it's coming from a, a couple of different places. First of all, it's dragging on. Um, and uh, I think there was an anticipation at the beginning of this conflict that it would be relatively fast. Uh, the plan was to take Kiev, remember, um, quickly, and, um, and that didn't happen. Um, so then a withdrawal. Uh, and remember, we, we, you know, the numbers were somewhere around 130 to 150,000 troops who had lined up uh, on the border in, in uh, February and who began to deploy February 24th. So uh, that's a lot of people. Um, not being able to take Kyiv uh, was, a, I think, a disappointment um, and a surprise. And uh, then having to, being able to take southern parts of Russia around Kherson, for example, relatively quickly, but a big battle for um, the city of Mariupol um, with the Azov Battalion uh, uh, fighting on Ukraine's behalf. Um, we can talk about the prisoner swap also that just happened then mm -hmm. um, when some of those guys were involved. Um, and so I think some of the pressure has come from people, uh, some of the elites closest to him who are very pro this war and want, want to win and worry that they're not winning. Um, and that the casualty rate's high. And so this would be the head of the Security Council, Patrushev, um, the head of the FSB, the head of the SVR, that's internal security, and uh, like their CIA and the head of their, their FBI. Um, and, um, and so I think that's really where it's coming from internally. Externally, you know, we saw this meeting of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the SCO, that took place in Central Asia last weekend, where... Uh, evidently, Mr. Xi of China and Modi of India were ha shared concerns uh, about the war, um, and uh, so I think that's that's partly where the pressure is coming from. And and then now we see some pressure from society, but perhaps a different kind. It has been, I mean, it's been strange to watch because it. You wonder what Russia can now throw at this that would make mm -hmm. that would be effective because obviously mobilization of people and just putting people on the front line it didn't work the first time around. It's hard mm -hmm. to imagine it'll work now. So it's it, it's hard to figure out Putin's game plan from afar in all this, other than nuclear saber saber rattling. Yeah. So I was recently this morning. I, I was on a a, a different call. Um, and uh, and one of the participants in that call made the point that, you know, there was a kind of conflict between the technocracy of the Russian military that actually knows how to fight wars and then the autocracy, um, the personalistic rule of, of Putin. And, and 
you know, they they didn't go into this uh, battle particularly well prepared, and the and the plan was not kind of widely shared. So they didn't have some of the things that you would normally expect, and we have seen, for example, in Syria, quite worked out with the military uh, in terms of transportation or taking out, you know, Ukrainian air uh, power. Um, so, uh, you know, this is this is often how an autocracy works, right? Um, uh, not not with regard to sort of rules of of uh, or or um, processes that have that have proven to work in the past. So, I guess the thought is by by bringing in more people, and it will take time to train these people. These are not, you know, Russia doesn't maintain a reserve system like um, we here in the United States do, where you know people would go in for monthly trainings on their weapons. Um, instead, what, what they're supposedly doing and what the law says they can do is call up people who have served in the military in the past. And so Russia ended its conscription system that it had under the Soviet system um, a couple of years ago, and they have transitioned to what they refer to as a contract uh, army, but it's a professional military, and they do have a small number of conscripts. Um, but those conscripts only serve a year, and the, they they are not trained on sophisticated uh, weapon systems because it takes a long time to learn those things, right? So, so if what they're doing is they're calling back people who've served a year or two years in the past, and the past can be all the way up to 20 or 30 years ago, evidently, given the ages that they're recruiting up to or drafting up to or calling in for this mobilization, then it is difficult to see exactly how effective they'll be on any of the new weapon systems. Um, it's unlikely that they would form new units and instead would be filling in for the casualties that that um, have already been suffered. So um, it is a bit puzzling to see that this will have some kind of great effect. If it does have effect, I mean, it, we won't see it, I think, for two, three, four months. And so the Ukrainians are really feeling pressed to consolidate their gains now and perhaps to take advantage uh, of the situation now and try and push further into reclaiming some of that territory in the East. No doubt where these referenda that they're holding, we remember uh, <laughs> the referenda in, in Crimea yeah. back in 2014. Uh, I remember similar yeah. votes in Donetsk when I was there in 2014 as well. Mm -hmm. uh, this would be part of the same plan, I imagine, by the Russians to consolidate yeah. and, and sort of reality on the ground, change the reality on the ground. Yeah, well, it is an unreality, though, right? They don't actually control all of these um, <laughs> these provinces that they're holding referenda in. Mm -hmm. So they don't control all of Donetsk or Luhansk or Kherson or uh, uh, the southern provinces. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. they, they, they certainly control some of them and more in some places than others, but not all of them. So, you know, no one really except, uh, you know, Nicaragua, the usual suspects, right? Syria, uh, maybe North Korea are gonna mm -hmm. recognize Russian sovereignty over these areas. Um, they're obviously still part of Ukraine and, and the referenda are taking place in a war zone. Um, I heard this morning that, um, you know, ballots are rather haphazardly distributed and there was one ballot for a family, um, you know, a voter. So yeah. this right. is ridiculous, right? And it's just uh, supposed to give it some sort of legitimacy. There's no option to uh, stay in Ukraine. It's basically, do you want to be an independent part 
uh, an independent state and then be part of the Russian Federation? That's essentially the question. So yes or no. Um, And I'm going to predict right now, Ben, that those referenda are going to pass. Uh, yes, <laughs> one way I, or the I, I, other. I, I'm figuring Saddam Hussein numbers here, 102 percent in the like. Yes. Uh, of, yeah, uh, they're going to be high. Yeah, but you know this represents nothing um, given the given the conditions under which these are being held. Catherine Stoner is with us this half hour. She's a senior fellow at the Freeman Smogli Institute for International Studies. We're talking about uh, the week that has been in Russia and the impact it's having on the war in Ukraine. Uh, lots of talk about, uh, we heard it today, there's an article in the Globe and Mail here in Canada about uh, a senior advisor to President Zelensky talking about uh, having to look at the Cuban Missile Crisis. There is a new crisis um, in Eastern Europe. Is that where do, where do the parallels come in? Is it that serious, do you think? Well, I think the parallel that there uh, that that people who are making reference to it are are pointing to is is um, you know we're coming close to um, the use of nuclear weapons or so it so it would seem right in 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 the Cuban Missile Crisis it was Nikita Khrushchev, so this is not the Soviet period. Um, there is no communist party. In fact, there's no real party that that survives independent of Putin himself. Um, he has a different source of power. Um, so I think the parallel is really just one of, gosh, he's saying he'll use nuclear weapons in the way that Khrushchev said he was putting them in, you know, in Cuba in retaliation for us putting them in, in Turkey. And, and so, I, but I don't see a huge parallel beyond that because what, um, what, what I think Putin is, is saying is that, look, one reason we're holding this, these referenda today in these four regions that we that we you know partially occupy in Ukraine is that should they become parts of the Russian homeland then our nuclear and and I'm going to predict that they will right mm-hmm. that's what they're going to declare our nuclear doctrine that is Russian nuclear doctrine says we will never use nuclear weapons first unless the homeland is threatened existentially threatened so that's not defined anywhere. What does that mean? It's pretty discretionary. And so um, this would, you know, give them a leg to stand on for for the use of what we think would be tactical nuclear weapons, which are those that can be delivered on a, on a missile or projection system of less than 300 kilometers. I should mention the former president of Russia, uh, Dmitry Medvedev, who's now become a rabid nationalist, um, is talking about strategic nuclear weapons and using those, and those go farther and are bigger. Um, so not clear what the implication is there, right? is that we, he would hit somewhere in Europe or even in the United States. But but it's it a dangerous moment. <laughs> it is a dangerous one. When you see it from the outside, it just reeks of, of just absolute chaos in the Kremlin now in some senses. This idea that Putin was somehow a master strategist, it seems to have all gone so incredibly wrong for for this this war effort in Ukraine, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, is he is he going to survive this, do you think? Is, I mean, are, they, are there legitimate threats now? We have this social unrest. I know it may not last, but are there? Is, will he survive this, do you think? So, um, uh this this is probably the most vulnerable he's been certainly in the 22 years that that he has been either president or prime minister of of Russia, um, but it isn't obvious who would replace him. Um, so this is a uh, there's a system on paper and then there's what happens in practice and 
Um, so the vulnerability is really not so much, and this is true generally of modern autocracies, it's not so much from social upheaval, although you know that makes for great television, we actually don't see a lot of social revolutions that produce democracies uh, anymore. Instead, we tend to see elite coups and, and only maybe you know 30% of, of uh, uh, autocracies fall because of, of people coming out on the streets. Um, and usually uh, an autocracy like this is replaced by another form of autocracy. So it's really, it's really, I think, the power agencies, um, and that is the the Security Council, the head of the internal security, SVR, external security, so the FSB, SVR. It's these people who, uh, if he loses them, um, and um, then these people are, are, you know, have are very pro the war, um, then they may try to shuffle him out. Um, and then a group of three or four of them would try to run the government, perhaps with a more uh, humane face, like the mayor of Moscow, Sabianin. So this could happen. And we are starting to see sort of signs of a little bit of elite disagreement and infighting and a little criticism coming out even on television. Um, but I wouldn't overplay that. Uh, it, it's, um, that's, that is the most likely scenario, but how likely a scenario it is, I think it's still, uh, it's still, you know, less than, than 20%, uh, possibility. But it, this is the first time we've seen, you know, the sort of aura of competence that Putin projects to his own people and, and, you know, around the world, uh, uh, so baldly, um, broken. And I imagine whoever would replace him, that does not mean the end of the war in Ukraine. Catherine Stoner, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks very much. 